Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast is brought to you by the Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships. The championships is a first of its kind, and it was created for the everyday whitetail deer hunter. Broken up into 14 regions across America and Canada, you can qualify for the championships for your chance to win $50,000. It's only $300 per man to enter, so it's a no-brainer, guys. If you have a bow and you have some arrows and you take pride in your archery and you love chasing white-tailed deer across America and Canada, check them out at nawtc.com or the bonecollector.com website and get details to get signed up now. Again, the North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Bone Collector, Michael Waddell, all of his crew out there supporting it. It's the first of its kind. It's going to be awesome. You guys are going to love it. Get signed up. Let's make this one for the ages, and let's continue it for many years to come. The Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships, thank you very much for being a partner here at This Life Ain't For Everybody. Hey everybody out there, Chad Belding coming at you with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. Thank you all very much for the support. It's been overwhelming and very humbling to know that there's actually people out there listening to this and uh, getting inspired, getting information, might pick up on a a thing, a a hint here or there. Um, Like I said, we're we're trying to bring a diverse audience, a diverse uh, set of guests that that uh, keep your wheels turning, keep you thinking, keep you on your toes. It's not going to be duck hunting every day. It's going to be a mixture of cooking and fishing and life and 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 uh, grilling out with a Traeger or fitness, whatever it is. We know that uh, not everybody's interested in the same thing, but we're going to try to cover topics that are diversified again, like I said before. And today's guest is a very diversified man when it comes to everyday life, including the outdoors. None other than Dave Stanley. You guys have heard him here before. His son was on with us last week, John David Stanley. Um, Dave, thank you for being here. And you just got back from Texas, yeah? I did with that guy that was on with you last week, John David. What were you all doing down there? Uh, it was the last week of his season. He guides for Ranger Creek up in northern Texas. And <clears throat> he... Um, the last week of the season, they don't book it, and he invites his friends, and the other guys that work with him invite their friends and, and their old man. And uh, so we just went down and had a good time. It was His birthday is always at the end of the season, and this year he had a bachelor party too because he's getting married. So a bunch of his friends from all over the country that he's grown up with, hunted with, guided with, whatever came, and we had a really good time. It was fun. So it was, it was, when you say northern Texas, is that the panhandle or is that west Texas? Where, what part of Texas is, are you in? You're sort of where we or where he is. The the name of the town is Haskell. Um, it's about an hour from Abilene, a couple hours from Dallas Fort Worth. To the west, it's north of Abilene and west of Dallas. Yeah. So you fly in. You drove. Yeah. But if you were to fly in, you'd fly into Dallas Fort Worth and then get in a rental car and go just straight west. Or some people fly to Abilene just because it's yeah. an hour closer. Abilene. I mean, they fly to Dallas and then back to Abilene. And yeah. then it's a uh, Haskell County. There's some history there with me too. That's where. Uh, the Duck Commander guys used to film a bunch of Benny Prince. I think most of Benny's stuff was right there. And was it? Haskell. So what were y'all hunting? Was it just goose that late? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the duck season ended on the last Sunday in January. And the last week, I mean, we basically started hunting on Monday or Tuesday together. And, and uh, so there was a few little Canadas, but not many. Uh, the lessers had, you know, moved back north a little bit from where they were uh, in that area. And uh, so we shot mostly specs. 
So were they decoying specs? Was it, was it, what is, what's the limit in Texas? Two. You can only kill two specs? Well, you can kill five dark geese, but only two of them can be specs. Really? Mm -hmm. So every day the specs were working just like, I mean, they read the script? Yeah, they, they, there were days it was tough too. You know, if you didn't get any wind, which is pretty normal for there at this time of year. I mean, the birds are wary. They've all been into decoys or been the next flock coming when the front flock in front of them got shot at, you know, so they're, they're really wary. So finishing birds, we killed a few, not many. Uh, most of them were, you know, if, if the wind would hang in there with us, we'd get good, you know, 30, 35 yard shots as they swung by or whatever. So were they pretty barred up? Yeah. Yeah. There weren't a lot of babies, mm -hmm. but that goes to the whole season really. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah. So when you're, when you're hunting specs that late in the year, are, what are they eating on? Are they in the peanuts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were hunting them in peanuts. I think, yeah, every day we hunted them in peanuts. Did you eat any of them while you were down there? Did you guys oh, yeah. get? Sure. Uh, is a is a a peanut fed speck as good as a fresh rice fed speck? Yeah, I think I think speckle bellies are pretty spectacular anyway. But <laughs> this time of year, once they switch from the grain to the grass, you know, I don't think they're anything all that great when they're eating grass. To tell you the truth, but but down there they're still eating peanuts. So you know, and just like. And this is about the time of year that the transition happens in, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, California, you know, where they get out of the rice because the rice fields are drying up to start with. And, and they start looking for green grass, you know, that's, that's shooting up here and there and everywhere because of the rain. So. so you're saying that the transitional part of like in California, for instance, is the farmers are taking the water off of the fields to start planting and get them ready for the planting season. Mm -hmm. yep. And as soon as that happens... The specks will move from that wet, flooded rice into just some, just the regular grasses, or what kind of grasses could it be? Um, you know, honestly, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's just, it's what we would call green up if you were up here in the mountains in Nevada chucker hunting, you know. I mean, it's just the green shoots that first come up when they turn the soil or, or whatever, you know, and they get a little rain on it, then stuff starts shooting up. I mean, it may be in places, I'm sure it's rice that's, you know, um, that's starting to grow. Not that it was planted, but waste crop from the previous year. I wonder if that's why a lot of Canada geese, you know, they're in the corn some, but a lot of them, the more and more you, you travel, you see this, but Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, place where places where there's a, or even, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, place where there's a lot of lesser Canada geese. And even the big ones that you go, you drive around where we live, or you go to like the Hewlett Packard campus around Fort Collins, Colorado. And on those days that aren't, you know, real cold or they're not getting down, the lows aren't getting real down as far as temperature goes, a lot of those geese just walk right out of those little, you know, those inner city ponds and start eating on the grass. Yep. And I saw it like I was in, in December in Wichita and every goose in the Wichita area was feeding in just regular green grass on golf courses, around, around businesses and, mm -hmm. and subdivisions. I want, is, is that why their meat's pretty tainted? As we, they don't get a really good reputation as far as being edible. Right. You can make them edible. You can. But if you put enough jalapenos or garlic on anything, you can eat it. Right? Yeah. So, and, and there's some, there's some good eating geese too, but, uh, or Canada geese. But yeah, I just, you know, I, and I never even thought about it until somebody pointed it out to me. You know, I, uh, when we first started having late season spec hunts here and, and snow goose hunts, whatever, you know, it was just like, well, maybe it's just because it's this warm or whatever. But then when you watch it, really the only thing different, because it gets warm all throughout the season at some days, right? Yeah. The only thing different is they're just not eating the grain anymore, you know? And, and I, yeah, I think, I think Canada geese are perfectly happy being grazers. Look here in Reno. I mean, we have 10 or 12,000 of them that never migrate. They, they live on the golf courses, you know, 
So what is what does that tell us about ducks then? What what is you love to eat ducks? Sure. You love to cook ducks. You don't really hunt, you know, you hunt all over, but your main place where you hunt is not a big dry feeding zone. No. It's not a big grain zone as far as the rices or the corns or um you, you know, you might have some millet out there, but are the mallards that you're killing where you consistently hunt at the canvasback club and what they're eating out there, are they as good as a, as a pea fed mallard in Canada or a peanut fed mallard in Oklahoma or Texas? I think they are for the most part. Occasionally you'll get one that's eating a few minnows or something like that. But, um, you know, typically what they're feeding on, even in our marsh in Nevada here is they're feeding on seeds. It's just different. You know, Swamp Timothy, they eat the seeds from Swamp Timothy. They eat the seeds from Sago. They eat the seeds from Nutgrass. They eat the seeds from Smartweed. I mean, they're eating seeds, just like wheat seed or whatever, you know. It's just a different, little different, um, you know, a little different plant. So they're not eating grasses, though, is what? No. So it's no. completely different. And, well, and honestly, other than widgeon, I've never seen, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen ducks grazing, you know, where they come out and they're literally grazing on the grass. I guess I have probably on a golf course you know but sometimes but widgeon widgeon seek that out you know they they like that green stuff widgeon and winter wheat man it's amazing to see that sometimes Uh, john david David says it's his favorite now i couldn't believe he said that but i mean he had flocks of hundreds of them finishing in his decoys this year he got pretty hooked on that yeah Yeah. i see that in oklahoma too Mm -hmm. so what is it about the grass that changes the 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 what is it? The blood flow through the meat? The what is it that changes that that would make a speckle belly taste different because of that time of the year where they switch from a grain like rice to mm-hmm. a grass? I'm trying to think in my head as you talk, and I know you said I don't know if it's a phenomenon, but like it cattle feed on grass and, and different things. I guess if you know when you really start breaking down beef and you hear about something like this company we work with, Snake River Farms with Traeger, they're mm-hmm. They're feeding their their cows are on feed for 550 days as opposed to 120 days for their briskets and 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 they're in their high they're that wagyu beef that you know it's so high in fat texture and but there's I'd, I'd have to do some investigation to see what they're eating I've just never really thought of it like man this this thing is changing from this rice to this green grass and it's affecting the way a speckle belly breast could taste it just i'm trying to figure out why sure well if you think about beef you know there's lots of people who you know as their as their cattle are growing up they're just out on the range you know grazing on whatever they can get right particularly here in nevada you see a lot of mountain grazing in the summer and then they bring them down and they may overgraze their their alfalfa fields or whatever in the wintertime. Um, but when they get ready to take them to market, they feed them grain, you know, and, and the grain creates fat, you know, the marbling and all of that stuff that we associate with beef. Well, that's not, you know, you don't see that in ducks because the meat doesn't get marbled with that, right? You get fat on top of it, which you can then remove, which is typically a pretty good idea. Um, but uh, unless you're cooking them whole. Um, so I think that it's just, you know, I think it's the same thing. I mean, I think it's, it's high, it's, it's high test feed as opposed to maintenance feed. So when you hear the term thrown around right now with this big movement in America of organic and, 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 you know, clean living, clean food, the the way that you hear grass fed a lot, grass fed Mm -hmm. beef, grass fed beef. Is that the initial stages of it out on the range? And then they bring it to grade grain to get it marbled up and to get the meat a little bit. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I guess I need to work on my, my, uh, in 
as far as my knowledge on this goes, because I thought grass, grass fed was good. No, I, I think it is. I mean, it, it is if you're, you know, what grass fed means in the beef industry, typically, and I'm not speaking universally here, but typically it means that, it, you know, these things aren't getting shots of steroids or they're not getting feed that's got all kinds of growth hormone or anything like that in it. They're eating natural stuff which is what people want now. They want to know what's in the meat they're eating, you know, which is what's created that market. The people that I live with up in Canada during the waterfowl season raise grass-fed beef and pork, you know, and, uh, and they, don't, they don't finish them on grain. I mean, they, that's the way they take them to the market. They feed them a whole lot of alfalfa, right. <laughs> you know, when, uh, particularly in the wintertime. But, um, but now they're, they're grass-fed. That's what they do. So, so it obviously, it obviously translates into something different in a beef or a pork than it does in a, in a, you know, waterfowl. I think it's very interesting that you, with your, your palate or whatever it is, can tell the difference. I don't know if I could, I don't know if, but I, now I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Hopefully you brought some of these late seed. Well, you were killing them in the peanuts. You know, Rocky just had an unbelievable hunt in California the other day where they killed 70 specks in the late season California February deal. I, I'm going to get some from him and test them against the ones that we have here that we killed, you know, in December in the rice. Sure. As opposed to those ones there because... Well, and they may not be on the grass yet. This is typically the time that, you know, once the weather starts to warm up, obviously we've had a couple of really... Well, big, that makes sense because really they killed them in stamps. rice the other day. So right, obviously right, they're not. Exactly. So that ain't going to work. But what has happened in the past, if you recall, when they first started having these spec seasons, it was like the last five days of the the late season snow goose season. So it was like the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th of March. And by then, it's pretty warm. And those birds are eating grass, you know, because the rice farmers have drawn all the water. You know, they've done their decomp and they've drawn all the water out of the rice fields or as much as they can um, at that point. And they're getting ready to work up their fields and put the rice back in. And so um, until they start planting, you know, the birds have picked over that stuff pretty good. So they go, they go elsewhere. I, I got a lot of thoughts running through my mind. Listen, you talk. The first one is you said, hopefully you can remove the fat from a duck or, you know, hopefully you get to remove the fat from the duck. Does that mean that Dave Stanley enjoys the red meat, just the, the, the breasting it out more so than a, a fully plucked duck that you put on? And there's different ways to prepare it. Where I'm going, sure, with, sure. Where I'm going with the Dave is, I know what you're talking about. do you like rendering it in the fat and getting that, that grease going or do you just like having the skin and the fat totally removed before you start cooking your no, favorite recipes? I love cooking them with the skin on them. Okay. What I don't do is cook them with the skin off of them and the fat on them. Okay. So I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm breasting out a duck, I'm going to remove all the fat off of it before I cook it. My personal choice. The right? fat that's under the skin attached to the, the breast Correct. meat. Correct. Okay. Whereas if I'm gonna, you know, split them in half and have a side of a breast and the back leg or, or take the breast off on the bone with the skin on it. You know, yeah, I'm not going to do anything with that fat. That's what makes it taste good. Do you eat the skin? I do. Yeah. Now, do you, is it something to where, you know, like reverse sear is a big thing that we've been doing a lot with the tri tips we did the other night. And I love doing the reverse sear. Is it something to where you have to have a little bit of crust on that skin is like a little bit more harder texture to where it's cooked all the way through kind of like a, a crispy bacon or something on that fat in that skin before you eat it with the meat? Or is it something to where, because you only cook duck to medium rare, you can't cook it more than that. No. So is it something to where you get it to 125 degrees internally and then sear that side down again on real high heat to get a little bit of crispiness to that fat? That's a better way to do it, you know. 
and, and you have to be set up to do it that way. But but I think searing it like that's a great idea, you know. Um, and I've had it. Well, like the tri-tip we had the other night was pretty good. Um, but, um, you know, if, I, if I'm just cooking it and I've got my basic grill with the charcoal in it and everything, right, and I'm going to cook a half a duck or a duck with the skin on it or whatever, then I just, um, yeah, I usually cook it till the skin's a little bit crispy. But I usually cook, whenever I cook duck, I cut, cook it over an extremely hot fire because I want to cook it right now and then get it off of there. I don't want to, you know, I don't want it to linger on the fire, so. And I cook almost everything over an open flame, the way I cook ducks. Do you do you believe in letting meat sweat before you cook? I mean, like, I, I'm learning a, this as I go right now mm -hmm. in this barbecue world of room temperature I've heard before. And then once the rub's on or once your marinade's on or whatever you're choosing to do, dry dry rub or whatever, wet, then the, a lot of these guys are telling me, let it let it sweat for 30 minutes while your grill's getting hot, you know, at that room temperature, but let that rub and get in there and let that meat sweat. And I've never done that with duck. I, I tend to like just pull them right off the bone at camp and get them ready to roll. And as soon as I have a marinade, they're on the fire. Right. Is, is, have you heard that term before, let the meat sweat? I have, and I really never understood why they called it that. I mean, I, I understand what the process is and everything, but um, it, you know, if, if you do it that, even if you're cleaning them, you're going to eat the ducks you shot yesterday right right you know, so they've cooled down it's, it's a little problematic eating the ducks the same day you shot them unless you have some way of getting the breast cool to then warm it back up you know what i mean i, I just don't i don't like to eat them if they're hot off the body just personal preference but anyway so you you're saying let them hang for a day or let them cool down for a day mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that with ducks right no what is the most you would let Let's say you kill limited greenheads. What is the most days you'll let them go hanging or sitting before you'll take the meat off the bone? Depends on the temperature. You know, if, if you're, if you're having a good go of it and you know, you're hunting all day and you don't feel like cleaning them at night. I mean, I, every now and then I'll let them go three days, maybe if it's cool or cold, you know, if it's, if it's October and it's 85 degrees outside, I'm cleaning them every day the day i shoot them so with a wild animal like you okay you temperature is a big part of this because antelope you would never do that 98 degrees in august the meat's coming off and going on ice right away right with ducks with it being colder in the fall and the winter does having the guts in the the stomach still and the in, in internal organs can it mess with it at 72 hours or four days five days if you do choose to let your ducks go longer what could you have to gun them out to do that um you probably should, particularly if you go four or five, six, seven days, which isn't uncommon. I mean, people do do that. I think when you really have a problem with it tainting the meat is when you have shell, shot that passes through and there's leakage back the other way. You know, it gets up under the breastbone and against that meat, you know, from whatever guts you shot up, you know, uh, or you shoot a duck going away and you're shooting through the back, you know, and it pushes that stuff into the breast, you know, that when the pellets break the breastbone. So... That, that's, a that, that's a problem, you know, and, and, and a lot of times I'll look at the birds too, you know, and if, if you got one that's pretty shot up, you should probably just clean it. You know, I, I think you should anyway, right? I, I do anyway. And, um, but, but, you know, if you've got some good headshot birds, you know, and, and, uh, you want to let them hang for a few days, I, I don't really do it so much for the flavor or anything. And I hear people tell me, yeah, it's way better if you do this, whatever. But I, you know, cleaning ducks is a, is at the moment of convenience, you know, when you're not too tired after a day of hunting or the next day or whatever, and, and you clean them and, you know, they're still perfectly fine. Like I said, as long as it's cool outside here or cool where they're hanging. 
you remember our last conversation we had on getting the birds back to your abode mm-hmm. and what is a possession limit and what's not? Well, if you hunt, if you, if you have ducks that are uncleaned in your abode, what's the difference between that and having them, the breast meat off the bone, but in your freezer, does that mean that there's, because they're not from a commercial processor, they're still part of your, I'm just remembering what we talked about. Yeah. It's still part of your possession limit, right? For sure. Unless they went through a commercial processor and you have the receipt and the tag that says now they're not considered part of it because they've been processed. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how that's interpreted. You know, this, I should have, I knew this, that we would end up talking about this again. So before <laughs> the next time we talk, I'm going to talk to the game wardens and see what they say about it. You know, the guys locally here anyway, um, because it's, it's one of those gray area things. I mean, it's like when I come back from Canada, if I bring a possession limit from Canada, I'm three birds over the legal limit in Nevada. In Nevada. I'm already three. I'm illegal as hell. Yeah. You know, that's the way it is. It's interesting stuff. To, I mean, we keep going back to that, but yeah. and because, you, you know, one of the things you said for sure is, or I think you said it, or somebody told me that you, if you kill 10 specks in California and you go get them processed in Gridley and they, they, you don't have to bring them back to Reno or to Nevada or to Oregon with a wing on anymore. Once they've been commercially processed, is that true? That's what we talked about. Right? So the possession limit, I might be a little premature on my thoughts there. It's, but I want to know what is the difference? You know, like if I have two days of ducks hanging here and then I have my third day that I just killed, I'm legal. As long as I don't have two days of breast already in the freezer. Right. Depending on how far a game warden wants to take to take his search right. or whatever, and and every game warden I've ever talked to about this is, you know, they realize the reason for the law. You know, you got to have some kind of limit, obviously, and some kind of possession limit, or people will just never stop shooting them. Um, and they're looking for guys who are killing twenty or thirty birds at a whack. You know, I mean, that's what they're looking for. That's why those laws are in place now. Originally, they were in place to stop market hunting, but that's pretty much gone by the wayside. So um, it's just a top to stop the game slobs now, you know, from killing too many birds and them not having any way of enforcing it. Right. My, my opinion. No, I, I think I think that's what it has to be a case by case evaluation to where if you're, you know, you're not an outlaw or you're not doing things consistently wrong, you're probably going to get a little bit of leeway with especially if you're somebody that enjoys eating. It's just, I don't want to get back into it, man. No, no. It's just, it's, it's just, it just, it's a mystery to me why we can't eat our ducks when we want to eat our ducks. Sure. And I wish that there would be a little bit more, you know, thought put into the law because I don't want to be ever at risk or nervous of having a freezer full of wild game that I, I, I legally harvest as far as the daily possession goes, mm-hmm. but I want, to have a big dinner in March with Dave Stanley and all my friends. I don't want somebody to say, you can't do that because you're way over your limit by saving a hundred ducks throughout the season. Sure, sure. That's, that's, that's the, that's the touch point with me that gets me on. What, what about this? Th- John, Dave and I touched on it and I want you to touch on it real quick is when it comes to what's it, traditional or what's the word I'm looking for with ho- farming techniques when it comes to the laws that are around baiting and all this stuff is it's not natural farming techniques but it's normal agricultural process process. normal agricultural whatever yeah so so flooding rice in california is normal but it has to be now okay because it can't burn it anymore right but flooding corn in idaho is not normal then then what is the argument what when people say 
you shouldn't be allowed to hunt ducks over flooded corn because it's not a normal process. Well, it depends on what you're raising the corn for. If you're raising the corn for the ducks, why can't you flood it? That's my argument. Those guys that raise the corn and flood it for the ducks are, are doing just that. Yes, they're going to shoot some ducks over it. A whole lot more ducks eat that corn than ever get shot. Okay, And so I think while it's not a normal agricultural process, it is... Um, it's an accepted one. Well, certainly it is right now. I mean, it's not illegal to do that. You know? True. Um, and uh, it's just, it's illegal if you manipulate the crop and then flood it. So you can't knock the corn down and then flood it. That's illegal. Right. Absolutely. No question about it. If you put cows out there and let them graze your corn and whatever they knock down and everything and then pull them off and then hunt it, that's legal because that's a normal agricultural process. So then what's the argument then? There's no argument because... Well, they're not going to knock it down like a mowing machine. No, but what I'm saying is that it's legal to do, even though it's not a normal agricultural process, if you're farming that corn for waterfowl and you legally harvest a few off of it, are the feds or are the people that are trying to put this into the House of Representatives and get the bill passed in places like Idaho, it was at one time on the Mm -hmm. bill, are they saying that you're baiting ducks by flooding corn? Yes. That's exactly what they're saying. How do you feel personally about it? Like, do you feel like when you go into a place where you've hunted in Idaho, and I have too, do you feel like you're hunted, ba- hunting baited mallards when you're harvesting them over flooded corn? No, not. I mean, I don't feel like it's illegal because it's not. You know, I mean, I don't feel bad about it or whatever. I, I think that if you look at the fall flights we have now, the last five years, you know, have been. 40, 42, 44 million, whatever the number is, it doesn't matter. It's a ton of ducks, right? And that many ducks may have been around here in 1800, you know, but they weren't eating agriculture. They were living in natural wetlands, which are no longer there. So if we don't provide them something to eat, they're not going to be any ducks. And I mean, that's the reality of it, okay? That might have been the best way I've ever heard it put. Well, it's the wetlands true. are gone. A lot of the breeding grounds are gone. If you don't have the John Shaws doing what they do, what are they going to eat? And the Canadian farmers who don't have to catch every single grain of, of, you know, wheat that comes out of their field or whatever. I mean, those birds come out of the tundra now. I mean, it's like a giant buffet for them. And they come over those Before, trees. Before, it was prairie grass and potholes with sago and smart weed and all that stuff. And they, and they did fine, you know. I mean, obviously, there were birds when people first came here, whether they're indigenous people or the Europeans or whoever. But... You know, we would not, there would be, we wouldn't be having a discussion about a duck season if it wasn't for the Canadian and American farmer, I can tell you that. What about your flight and your personal feeling on your flyway? You're where you're at. This is where I hunt. I don't get to travel. And I'm not talking about you personally. I'm just talking about, this is where we hunt. This is where I take my kids every weekend or whatever. But six hours north of here, there's thousands of acres of flooded corn that you could argue, say, have manipulated the flyway of the of the natural migration getting to where it used to get. Whether you're talking about any of the four flyways, there's flooded corn or f- practices that aren't considered normal farming practices. Do, do you ever sit there and go, what the, f- man, our, we're not getting our ducks. They're held up here because it takes a an act, of, it takes a huge natural occurrence to get them out of that flooded corn. It does, but it's not, you know, you got to keep in mind, it's not just the flooded corn. It's the corn. I mean, when they naturally harvest, when they, when they harvest corn for the market, whether they're going to feed it to cattle or humans, right? They take big machines, go down through these fields. There's always spill crop, and there's thousands of acres of that. 
in the Columbia and Snake River Basin, for example, which is north of us, why well, I'm saying those two places. Um, and so they go into those cutover cornfields. I mean, you've hunted them in there, so have I. You know, they're not flooded. They're just they're just a cornfield. They're, the farmer's done with it. He gives you permission to hunt. You go do it. And uh, um, But the birds find that feed, and they like that dry land feed as much as they like the, you know, the feed in the, in the water if they can find it. You know, I, I mean, I truly believe that, that they, um, they can see it laying out there on the ground. They don't have to hunt around for it when it's under, underwater. They have to, you know, kind of dig around and find it. But, uh, um, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, when I'm, I'm down here in Nevada and we've had those years in the last five years, we've had a couple of those years where the birds just never got here in the numbers you would expect them to. And, you know, they just got held up and that's a weather phenomenon. I, I look at it more as a weather phenomenon than a farming phenomenon whether you're flooding the corn or not flooding it or whatever crop it is. Cause if it doesn't snow a foot and get really cold to where the ducks can't dig down through it, they don't leave anymore. You know, when you start talking about duck numbers in your fall flight and you just threw out numbers in the 40 millions, the snow goose number, and I follow along with me on this for a second. Sure. The snow goose number is, has been at an all time high for several years. And that's the reason for the spring season, the depredation, the conservation season, right? Mm-hmm. something has to be done to try to put a dent in them before they destroy their breeding grounds before, you know, be, they're just a diff, they're, there's too many of them. And uncommonly the U S fish and wildlife service and uh, specifically the U S fish and wildlife service has decided to let the hunter participate in that. Normally they don't, they, normally they do don't. not like with pintails and stuff. No, nope, we're not doing that. We're not going to let you shoot four drakes. You know, we don't think that's right. So but, since, but we'll let you kill 50 snow geese or a truckload, whatever. Yeah, or whatever you want. Yeah, it's different. Weird. It's yeah, weird. It is weird. And it's also weird that you can only do it in certain times, but you could get on a day in October, like we've talked about before, where you could kill 600 of them because they're all doing it, but you're not allowed to that day. You got to kill 25 each. Like, I don't know. That's that's a weird thing. But where I'm going is the, the hatch was messed up this year on Lesser Canada geese and snow geese. From what I heard, back in September, I was getting phone calls from guys in Canada, and I'm sure you were too. Dude, we can't kill a goose. They're not decoying like they usually do. Even the lessers are weird. If it wasn't for ducks, our season would have been screwed. If it wasn't for the, uh, sure. uh, you know, the unnor- uh, abnormal amount of mallards that we have in our area in Saskatchewan right now, we would have had some probably cli- clients going home without very memorable hunts. Um, the snow goose numbers aren't down because they have one year of a bad. The, what what had happened was the hatch happens. Then thirteen inches of snow cover up those those gooselings, goslings, and killed them some the lessers and i'm going off of some of the things that our friend our mutual friend chris nikolai told me which that guy's so smart he's he's pretty sharp when it comes to this in a really nonchalant way never met anybody like Uh, yeah he's a bird nerd to the highest he is a bird nerd that's good i like that did he did uh you heard this right this was part of your everyday occurrence this season you heard hearing it all the time right oh it was yeah i mean by the time you got up there you know i saw you and October sometime, right? And I'd been there since uh, in Alberta since the middle of September, I think. It was it was tough hunting. I mean, we little Canada geese, man, we didn't get into them hardly at all. Killed more big Canadas than I've ever killed because I hunted for them. Because I don't usually like to hunt for them, <laughs> but there weren't any other geese to hunt for. Um, the duck hunting was phenomenal. Um, specs, I thought the specs were off too. You know, um, certainly in that part of Alberta, they were, but the little Canada's and the snow geese was, you know, the numbers were, I mean, it was crazy. You didn't notice the numbers with the little Canada's. What you noticed was they would not decoy. 
very often, you know. Um, whereas normally when you get those flocks of 50 or 100 or 200, man, they just, some of the young ones, I'm assuming it's the young ones, because that's what happens with snow geese. They start coming and coming and coming, and you see some birds start getting a little nervous, but those young ones just, just pile in. I mean, they're hungry, and they're going to go eat, you know. And, and like with the snow geese, you can see those little gray ones come down, and the adults are trying to call them back and everything, and they just go, nah, I'm going to get something to eat, you know. You just didn't see that this year. I mean, it was, it, it was incredibly noticeable. And I didn't know what the deal was until almost the end of the time I was in Canada. I ran into a guy from the... Canadian Wildlife Service and, and told you about the snowstorm. Told him exactly what um, Chris told you. Yeah. So what did, when when you start thinking about what we're talking about here? I've been told the spring season's going to be hell on outfitters. Like it's not this is not the year to go on your spring snow goose hunt oh over boy. over these decoys, right? So what does that tell us about snow geese and this depredation hunt? When what what's telling me and you tell me if I'm wrong, Dave, is that we're just killing the the year the birds that are just born but we're still we're still dealing with a species that on record have lived into their 30s their late 20s average probably 15 to 20 years old Mm -hmm. what are we really doing are we just is that what our our main goal is is to kill all of the babies what the first year geese and if if we don't have a good hatch or we don't have a good amount of juvies juvies are the ones that are really dying in the spring. They leave later because they're not in a hurry to get back up because they're not breeding yet. The the, the mature geese go first. It's tougher on those. It's tougher to decoy those because they've been there, done that, or are they just that smart? But what are we really doing? Are we just killing the young ones consistently? Well, we are doing that. I mean, I am. I can tell you that. You know, the, the years that we have great snow goose hunts um, in Canada is the years we have great uh, juvie counts, you know, I mean, you're going to kill, I've killed a hundred birds in a day, exactly 100. I can remember one time with some guys from Reno, we killed 97 juvies and three adults and we weren't picking out the juvies. I mean, we were just shooting the birds that came in, you know, Uh, and that's not, that's a little extreme, but I mean, 60 or 70% of your harvest every day being juvies is not unusual. So to answer your question, are we just killing juvies? No, because you, you, you inflict a fair amount of damage on the adults, you know, when you have that many juice. I mean, they just come in with them, right? You know, they, whatever reason, they, they get wrapped up in it. Um, yeah, well, I was going to tell you, this year, I had one day my brother came up and hunted with me for a few days, and we had one good snow goose hunt, and we killed 30-some, which is not a million snow geese or anything, you know, but it was, it was all right. 30-some was good that year, and I think I killed more than 10 one other time the whole season. And, you know, I mean, I, I certainly I didn't go and set up for snow geese. I would set up snow geese and lay in whites to shoot ducks or dark geese or specks or whatever we were doing, you know. But but you're set up for snow geese every day because that's the way I'd hide. Um, so, you're, so you're pretty much telling me that 18-19 season was a very difficult goose season for snow geese and lessers and even specks. It was even for specks. I mean, we killed plenty of specks, don't get me wrong, but it was, it was noticeably different. Is it the same part of the country, same part of the region that got the snow, where the specks are, where the hatch is heavy there too, or is that something that we need to look into? That's a good question, and because I I've heard uh, the same thing that specks were held in a lot of places too. Right, and then you talk to the guys who hunted this weekend, and nine of them killed ninety in California, or seven of them killed seventy. You know, and, yeah. But Smoking. they're different snow. They're different. Excuse me, specks. They're they're coming from a different place. They're different white fronted geese. They know? are. Yeah. Then the ones that we're talking about that were part of this <laughs> snowstorm. So. The question on my mind is then why was it such a weird duck season? Was it, first of all, because I know that there was reports coming out of 
some parts of California, even though I've heard like the Butte Sink had a very difficult season com- on, you know, mm-hmm. compared to their yearly average on record, as opposed to some of the rice country of California. But as a whole, this season was weird with the early storms and the early migration in November. I had people call me from Oklahoma and Texas. This is unreal. We got them all. I'm like, just be careful what you wish for, man, because in another three weeks, They're gonna be tired you, you might have <laughs> every educated bird in the country there while the other ones aren't moving down or whatever. And I think that's what happened. I don't know for sure, but do the ducks, was it a bad hatch for ducks? Was that number that you threw out there in the 40 millions, was it on average? Was it up to par this year? Why was it such a weird duck season? Not geese anymore, mm-hmm. just ducks. I think I think the fall flight was off. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be within a couple percentage points of being right. It was off maybe 8 or 9% from the previous year, which was one of the two or three largest fall flights ever. So still big numbers, huge numbers, you know. Um, and, and particularly in the species that get hunted the hardest mallards and that kind of thing, that their numbers were okay. You know, they were down a little bit, but not significantly over the 50 year, you know, long-term average is what they call it. So, um, so the ducks were there. We got some really cold weather in Canada in early to mid October. And then by the end of October, it was really cold and the birds left, you know, um, there were still ducks there and the hunting was good. Um, it was, it was an exceptionally good duck season, but it always is there. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I can't remember the duck hunting being tough, you know, in the, in all the years I've been going up there, but, but, um, uh, you know, as, as when you take a snapshot of a season, certainly you're going to have days you don't get them, you know, like any place else, but, um, but they left early in noticeable numbers. They left early, you know, and, and there were never the big swarms of them that you see there at the end of October, not where I was hunting anyway. You just didn't see that. You could find some ducks and go, you know, you find a field with three or 400 ducks in it, you can go shoot your birds. I mean, you know, you can kill eight. So you usually get, get them out of the flock that, that big. But, um, uh, you know, it, it, I think they came early, like you said, and in a lot of places, um, you know, I know our friends in Idaho, they got them in the, in the middle of November. They were full up with ducks. And it was their opinion. They were still shooting the same ones on the 20th of January when the season went out, you know. Uh, and, and I'm not, it would be tough to argue with them. I hunted, a, I hunted up there in January, uh, the first or second week. And it was, you know, there's so many ducks, it's hard to say it was tough, right? You know, I mean, there's a lot of ducks around, but there's a lot of super decoy shy. You know, it was the kind of deal where even on the clubs and stuff, they weren't, they weren't using spinners. They weren't, nothing they had been doing for most of the season. They just quit doing it all. And, you know, they'd have the, the ice machines, what do you call those things? Ice eaters? Yeah, ice eaters going. <clears throat> Partially because of the ice, but just to have some, you know, motion in the decoys and whatnot and, and uh, the places that have those things. So it got tough. Um, and in Nevada, it was kind of a different deal. It was really weird. And, and it was, this was as a result of a f- flood we had last year, right? Last year we had massive flooding in the in the sink out there where we all hunt and because of a you know a record snowpack so this fall at our club we're able to control the water level right so we you know we can make our ponds the level we want them for the most part and um and and keep flooding new things for the birds throughout the season and it worked great i mean we had i wasn't here in october but once I got here in November, from November till about 10 days from the end of the season, we had consistently good hunting the whole time. 
It wasn't great hunting necessarily lights out, you know, all over the club or, or all over our property or whatever, but it was good hunting. You could go everywhere, have an opportunity to kill some ducks every day. Um, if you were in the right spot, you were going to have a really great shoot. Um, and it was just like that, you know, because they were here. Um, and, and, and we, we hunt a lot of different kinds of ducks on the property. It's not just hunting mallards like it is in Idaho. Okay. You know, it's mallards and sprig and widgeon and gadwell and couple of different kinds of teal for the puddle ducks and then we have a this year we had phenomenal diver duck hunting excellent canvas back incredible redhead numbers this year crazy good and then we have a few scop a few ringnecks whatever and uh so it keeps you know you can go hunt puddle ducks you can go hunt divers it's kind of fun but but this year for us it really was a season that just kept going you kept thinking okay this weekend is going to be the weekend that it just dies and then, and then we got a little ice in december which always makes the hunting good where we live you know and that was great but we didn't get so much that it ran the birds off and so then when it thawed back out again they were all still there or the vast majority of them were and uh Really, they didn't leave till right at the end of the season, and then birds were coming back from the south by that time. So, it was it was. If if you ask the members of the Canvasback Club, they'll tell you it was one of the best seasons, start to stop, um, that any of them can remember. How cool is that? Very. How many that band, does, how many bands did you harvest on the Canvasback this year, personally? On the Canvasback. Well, in the Stillwater area. Well, I mean, yeah. In, in, uh, I killed 10 banded birds. They had 11 bands. One of Chris Nicolai's was double banded. <laughs> it was a canvas back he banded a few years ago. So, And you found one? I found one, yeah. I was laying in my layout boat, and I shot a duck that fell behind me, and I walked back there, and there's this old decaying duck just floating in some tulies, nasty stuff stinky-looking thing, all covered with green of moss. Of course he was banded. And I look on his leg. His leg's not even orange anymore, right? It's like some horrible shade of yellow. Was it a mallard? Just, yeah, it was a greenhead. And uh, yeah, he had a band on his leg. So, yeah. so I just carefully got my leather man and cut his leg off and tried not to get some disease from him. And anyway, but yeah, it was... It was That's unheard of. <laughs> Ten duck bands in one season, though? Well, and one of them was double banded? Mm -hmm. Is that your best on record? I've killed ten birds with... One double banded one other season, which is really weird. But I didn't find one on a duck. This is the most bands I've ever gotten, counting the one I found. Wow, that's amazing. But uh, yeah, could you put a number on? Do you have a number that's a hundred percent of what you've harvested in Nevada banded birds over your hunting career here? Do you know the number, or would you just be oh, guessing? I would be guessing. I mean, I have it. I can go through my hunting log and look. I mean, because I, I make a little, you know, asterisk or whatever by the ones that are banded and, or the kids caught killed or whatever. But yeah, uh, it's. You know, they ban a lot of birds on the club, so we're starting out with, you know, you know we odds. allow them to. Um, and because we have the kind of water they need to catch them in in the summertime, and, and it's better than the big units that are on the public area. So, um, yeah, we, I mean, we have a better than average chance of shooting some banded birds there for sure. But if you shoot mallards and you shoot gadwell, and I don't shoot gadwell, but typically, I mean, I don't have anything against shooting them, but I'm... When I'm hunting where I'm going to be shooting a gadwall, I'm also hunting where I'm going to be shooting a mallard, and I'd rather shoot them. And those are the birds they ban the most of. So why? Those are the most birds around that yeah. time the, in the when, summer when, when they're, they're when they're shooting nets or they're doing the they, they, netting them on the club. They just set traps. You know, it's kind of a little circular deal where by the time they swim around and get into the pile of corn, they can't figure out how to get out. You know, yeah, and uh, like so. a crawfish trap. Exactly like that. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah. How did I get in here? <laughs> I can't get. Oh shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Whoops. So you 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 talk about you said the words reverse migration there. You get all these ducks that come down. I've seen December, January in Idaho where we're talking about where 
you can walk across mallards on the refuges. You can walk across them on the duck clubs. The Snake River's got them. That's the kind of numbers you're talking about that they had in November this year. Then you say that they're hunting a lot of educated birds 60 days later in January towards the end of the season. Uh, is it is it possible that when the mallards got there in November, that when the, we- the weather evened out and got mild again, did some of them go back north? And the reason I'm asking is because north there, there was unbelievable mallard numbers in Montana, Wyoming, western Nebraska, all the way through January. Even the number of mallards in western North Dakota in the beginning of January, the week you know between Christmas and New Year's and right after New Year's, was at was amazing the numbers that were being harvested the number of ducks that were being seen did some of those ducks come to as low as idaho or wherever and go back north or is there just more ducks coming well i would i'd say in that case that's probably exactly what happened and and i have talked to biologists who say that that does happen you know the birds will you know it's just as easy for them to bump back a couple hundred miles north when the weather gets nice as it is for them to stay where they are or do the same thing going south and you know in western north dakota to have you know, huge duck numbers, not only duck numbers, because, I mean, they can be on the rivers there or whatever, but to have people killing them, I mean, that's crazy. That, that's a weather phenomenon, too, you know? I mean, it just, it couldn't have been as cold as it normally is in January for them to be doing that, I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think either. You know, I don't know the answer to that, but, uh, you know, just that would be very, very unusual. So I, I do believe they do that for sure. Um, and I think that the banding that they've done here even would would support that. You know, where they're, you know, where they, they kill a, a bunch of them in late November and December. It might even be north of here, whatever, you know. I mean, they, they, can, they can plot it, obviously, by, the, by where the band returns come from. But um, it definitely happens. There's no doubt about it. A reverse migration earlier in the season when the weather gets back to, you know, what, you know evens out mm-hmm. or whatever term you want to use. What, what would it take... I guess the question is, is the goal of a duck to get as far south as he possibly can during the migration? Because you always hear ducks start here right. and they're going here and then you got, you know, Sprague will go to Mexico and then you got, you know, Teal that'll be down the Salton mm-hmm. Sea of Southern California. Is it the duck's goal to get there? What is the duck's goal in the migration? To stay alive and to stay fed? I think it's, it, I think they, it's food is what, it, I think food, the availability of it, the harassment factor from hunters and, and other sources um, but, but I think they move based on feed, you know, when, when we get, when we get those ducks hung up in Washington and Idaho that we want very badly to come down here and visit us in January, you know, if they get a foot of snow and it gets below zero, they'll be here. You can bet on it. You know, they, they can't stay there if they can't feed. Um, but I, I believe it's food that, that does it. And, and that's why they'll, they'll go back North if the conditions are right. The question is, how does a duck know that? How does he know when he goes north in November that that's going to be a smart move? Yeah, how do they know that? Uh, yeah, uh, and nobody knows the answer to that as far as I know. But it's, it's one of the more interesting things you think about while you're out there duck hunting, you know, uh, is how these things know. I would gather to say that the Drakes followed some chicks up there. But I don't, I mean, because that happens. Sure. But I just don't see, like, why would, if you're, if you're moving down a migratory route and it, mm-hmm. it's not time to go back to breed, why would you, if you have plenty of flooded corn, if you have plenty of food, plenty of open water, why would you get up and go north when your whole goal was to get south? And maybe it's not the goal to get south. It's no. This is what I love about the psyche of duck hunting is 
We can bitch all we want. This is a terrible season. And then you come in here with a refreshing report that, dude, consistently in Nevada, it was great. Rocky's duck numbers were great. Can Canadians were had had an awesome, which you said it's common up there. There was a lot of places, Arkansas, that struggled. Louisiana for sure. Struggled. Look Southeast Missouri. Way south. And if those birds got there early, they didn't reverse migrate or they didn't go on. They stayed there, got stale, and that's man, I'd rather have fewer ducks than stale ducks anytime. Is Arkansas in trouble to continue to term themselves or coin themselves the duck capital of the world? I would think not at this point because there doesn't seem to be a change in a major change in the agriculture there or the agriculture south of there. You know, they're still going to raise a lot of rice and and other crops too that the ducks like. And they're still going to have woods that have acorns in it that they're going to put water in. So, um, you know, Arkansas is an anomaly though. I mean, when you think about the duck harvest there with the small season and the even smaller limits they have, it's incredible. They kill them 1.2 million mallards or something stupid like that. I mean, it's nuts in a state that can only kill four and has a 60-day season. It's crazy. And what do you know about the 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 new regulations on non-residents on public ground? Have you looked into any of this at all? I've, I've just seen a little bit of it on the, you know, somebody would send me a snippet of it from the internet or whatever. I'm not much of a surfer, so I don't, I don't check that stuff <laughs> out. But, uh, but, but people do send it to me from time to time, yeah. Why, why would they do that to their economy? Um, I think they're listening to their constituents. You know, it's sort of like, why does Nevada charge more for a non-resident elk tag than they charge for a resident elk tag? You know, it's, hey, you know, we need to give the non-residents less opportunity and make them pay more for it because the people who live here are supporting this deal in some fashion or another 365 days a year. I'm not saying that's the right approach. And in a place like Arkansas that relies heavily on tourism for duck hunting numbers, you know. I mean, there's a lot of Arkan people from Arkansas um, who duck hunt. Don't get me wrong about that. But there's a whole lot of people. I wonder what the there. I wonder what the 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 numbers are. They, as they, far have, du- they have duck stamps in Arkansas. You can get that information. I, I, I wonder if it's close to like fifty fifty of non residents uh, with resident non residents because a lot of non residents go there. Oh. It's got to be the biggest tourist state for duck hunting. Um, for out-of-staters coming to, it's got to be. Is there anything even close? I I can't think of it if there is. Where no. else do people fly into to duck hunt besides Canada? Where do you, in your life, your your brother lives in Delaware. You're, he's up there, you know, mm-hmm. above the eastern shore or around the eastern shore. I, I would say that, that at one time was, but you can only kill one Canada goose there. Now, I don't see a lot of people flooding into the eastern shore unless you're a sea duck hunter. I know there's a little bit of puddle back up to two. Oh, is it back up to two? Yeah, and they have, a- they have phenomenal snow goose hunting there, and they do have some really good puddle duck hunting. They, they have to work for it. It's not, you know, a lot of there's a lot of private ground in the eastern. I mean, one of the reasons when I came out west for a year, 40 years ago, and stayed was because, you know, I live in a state that 87% of it's public land. I mean, that's for a guy who grew up in Virginia and there were no trespassing signs everywhere, some of them belonging to my family, too, to be perfectly fair about it. But it's very difficult, very difficult to, to get permission in a lot of places. And when you go on the eastern shore of Maryland, Delaware, the Chesapeake Bay area, they've been hunting ducks there for so long that, you know, if, if you don't have it tied up, your chances of getting it aren't good. And But fortunately, there's public ground there. My brother mostly hunts public ground, and uh, 
Um, he does really well, but he's been doing it for 40 years too. So if you were on Jeopardy and, or not Jeopardy because you have to have the question and they already have the answer. Let's just say there's a game show to where the trivia question is, Dave, what is the number? I don't even know if Arkansas is number one, so I guess I can't beat Pat Sajak on this deal. I cannot imagine there's another place that people travel to like they travel to hunt the ducks in the trees in Arkansas. I just, I, I don't know what Do you know anybody be. that flies into Sacramento to go hunt around the Butte Sink or to hunt at all? Or I mean, I know we drive over the hill in a three-hour easy drive. Right. But people are flying. I've, I've been in Max Prairie Wings and seen people from Australia, New Zealand, the Asia that have come there. The duck capital of the world, the rice capital of the world, Max Prairie Wings, Stuttgart, Arkansas, the Grand Prairie. I don't know if there's anywhere else, especially in the continent of the United States. In Canada, I know that there are Americans that fly out there, but I would say nowhere near the numbers that fly into Arkansas. Not in a space, not in an area as small as Arkansas. Yeah, pick, I mean, pick the best area in Canada the size of Arkansas. No way. No not way. even close. Not even close. What would be the trivia question? If, if, assuming that Arkansas Grand Prairie is number one for tourists, duck hunters, out-of-state guys to go, mm -hmm. what would your answer be if we were in trivia right now in the $25,000 pyramid of the number two access place in the continental United States? You can't have Canada. For ducks. Or geese. Hmm. Have you ever thought of it like that? Like, I don't know no. anywhere else. I know people come to Colorado, but they that. drive from Utah. They come down from Wyoming. Are a lot of people flying in the Denver International Airport to go waterfowl hunting? I would bet you it's that certainly in the top five would be the Eastern Shore, um, that Chesapeake Bay region, because there's so many states right around it. Okay, I mean, you know, New York's a pretty big state, right, population-wise. That's, that's a few hours drive from there. So you have a much huger... Much larger, sorry. Huger. Uh, huger, good word. Much larger population base around that area than you have around Arkansas, for sure. It, it's, a, it's a good thought or a good question to think about. Like, question. I wonder where people go to duck hunt that don't hunt in their backyard. Yeah. As much as you have access to in the country, you could go a lot of places and hunt throughout the year. You could go to California on any given day. You could fly into Texas like you did, which you did the last season, but you could do it any time this season and go hook onto a hunt with J.D., you know people all over Idaho, Oregon, Columbia Basin of Washington. Mont You've been everywhere. You could go back and hunt in Delaware. You could hunt the Eastern Shore. You could hunt in all over Arkansas and the Mississippi Flyway. You choose to stay in this little place. Besides Canada, you are mainly hunting in the state of Nevada, which is a an anomaly in a way, too. Remember, what's his name at the World Duck? Yes, we have ducks. I don't want to say his name, but, but yeah, but you... Is, is it because you have so much pride in your club, Dave, that you're the president and this is it? What's it going to take for you to say, I'm going to Arkansas to hunt the timber again, even though JD or Katie, none of my family is competing on Main Street in the World Duck Calling Championships. Is there something that's going to get Dave Stanley to go, yeah, I'm going yeah. back to Arkansas? It, it would be the people. It would be because I was going with you or I was going with Katie and John David or I was going with somebody else that was you know, important to me and, and my brother, for example. Um, you know, If I was going to do that, that's what would get me to go. But it, it really is, you know, you, you and I have talked about this a lot when we've been hunting or been talking about hunting. It's, it, people told me this would happen, and I doubted it for a long time. But it, it isn't about the pile anymore. It's about the people you make that pile with. How big or small it is really doesn't matter, you know. And uh, um, that's what's so great about, you know, I, about 25 years ago, I told a friend of mine, I said, you know, one of these days I want to be able to go up and when the season starts in Canada, I want to be up there in northern Canada someplace. 
and I want to chase those birds to the end, you know, and, and I can do that now. <laughs> Actually, this year I kind of got to do it. You, you know, I was it. hunting them in early September there and I was hunting them the last day will, of the season. Will you do Texas. that again this year? Oh, sure. Are you already thinking about it and looking forward to it, <laughs> even though it's only February? Sure. Of course. You're already... A, because it's February. <laughs> you're already giddy about it. Even though how much yeah. you love throwing a fly. Yeah. Dry or wet nymph. No matter how... You've hunted, you, you've hunted fish all over the world. Yeah. You're still giddy about, I can't wait to get back to Canada. And we're still, seven, or we're still eight months away. Right. Nine months away. But no, it's, it's... Seven and a half months yeah, away. Yeah, let's see. March, April, May, June, July, August. Yeah, seven months away. So, um yeah, but those are, you know, seven of the best fishing months of the year. So I got something to do to occupy my time, you know. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, sure, I'm thinking about it, you know. And uh, I, was, I was just looking at some stuff, that my inventory of my trailer that I take to Canada today. I'm thinking, eh, I need to replace that or I need to fix that before, you know, I go back up there. And so it gives you something to do, you know. I wonder if deer hunters think like that. Are they yes. thinking this early right now? Well, well, the food plotters and the guys that are raising the, the you know, that are really into it in, in places where that's allowed or places where... Sure. You're, I wonder but if they're, they're out there looking for sheds and, you know, they find a way to make it part of their life, you know. So that's they, a good point. So they go look for sheds and then they look for spots for their food plot. Application or, season's still coming up. Right, it's right. about and, to come and, up right and, now. You know, that's, that's um, you know, something that's a norm for you and me, the whole applying for a tag process, but... Well over half the country, you just walk in and buy one over the counter if you're a resident of the state. So, you know, that's not an issue for them unless they want to, you know, some guy in Virginia wants to say, you know, I want to go kill a mule deer. So I'm going to hire this guy in Wyoming or I want to go kill an elk. I'm going to go to Colorado. And so, yeah, that adds to it, too. But sure, that, those deer hunters, um, you know, they're they're looking for new places for their stands. They're, you know, they may go into that that buck that they couldn't get this year, go right into his bedroom and just check it out. Cause it doesn't matter if they spook him now. Right. Right. You know? Um, and, and try to find out stuff they don't know. And you know, that's, that's the whole game. I mean, that's, that's what's fun about it is, is, is you figure it out and then you end up in the right spot at the right time, whether it's a duck or a deer or whatever, it doesn't matter. So you're saying that on record that deer hunters are just as passionate as duck hunters. Oh, I think so, man. You ever talk to them? <laughs> it's hard to did you ever and i use this term exactly did you ever get stuck in a deer lodge and you couldn't get out of there <laughs> i guess yeah that's why outfitters don't mix duck hunters with deer hunters they're just no, it's one of those I mean, things you don't make well they just look at the world completely differently but they are absolutely as passionate and and it's it's no different if you go to uh you go to a part of the country go to georgia or north florida where guys are absolutely sick about shooting bobwhite quail and they're just ill about their dogs and doing it that way and everything. You know, they're, they're no less passionate than I am about, you know, going to Canada and shooting ducks or going out to Fallon and shooting some ducks or whatever, going, getting to go on a sheep hunt or whatever it is, you know. Um, uh, we, you know, it's, it's interesting to see. We get wrapped up in the duck thing because that's most of our, you know, the, the people who are around us more of the time are people who are interested in that for sure. And uh, you and I, anyway. And um, uh, but yeah, they're. I believe they're absolutely as passionate, which is a great thing, man. That's the only way hunting survives. Hundred percent. When it comes to the vocalizations of, of of ducks, and the way that your mind works with the migration, starting in Canada, being with friends, being with family, duck camp, being with your dog, hunting in Nevada a bunch in the Stillwater Marsh and the Canvasback Duck Club. Is the thing that still at your at your experience, you've hunted ducks 
for 40, for well over 40 years yeah, now. 50 some years. Yeah. Yeah. 50. I started when I was 10. So 50 years. Yeah. I started that with the vocalization, but what is the thing about it besides the camaraderie and the people you're with and the memories and the family and the friends and the campfires and the meals? Mm-hmm. Is it calling? Does that still turn you on like it did back in the day or did it ever? But like, is calling like this phenomenon in duck hunting that makes, that gets people hooked and keeps them hooked throughout the, is there anything else in the sport, maybe besides your dog? Right that keeps you interested in waterfowl hunting, like the vocalizations and that you're actually having a conversation with ducks or geese to that. Like, sure. I don't know if you're really having a conversation with deer when you call Merritt, you stop him. You might be saying something or, or challenging him. I guess a snort wheeze, predator hunting. It's an animal dying. You're not really having you. I get it. There is vocalization and howling a dog mm-hmm. in, but most of it's done through, you know, distress sounds. Is that still what gets you going a lot? Is it the main thing that you think about calling still? And I'm talking about besides the camaraderie part of it. Right, right. No, I think it, I mean, I enjoy that part of it. And um, I, you know, I don't think I'm as good as I used to be. Okay. I don't think I can blow a call as well as I used to. I can blow it all right. I can still kill a few ducks and everything. But, but Did somebody but, but, say something to you, Dave? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I heard you dropped a hint, but they did not. <laughs> no, um, it's, um, I still enjoy that part of it. I, what I really, really enjoy about all of it is I love watching those things fly. I don't know what it is about it. And then, of course, part of that is calling because when they're flying by and, you know, some days it doesn't matter what kind of call or who you have in the blind with you. The ducks just don't react to the call, you know. And we saw a lot of that um, in Idaho this, this January just because they've been called at and, you know, they just don't react. So, so that takes that out. Of, of play that day, but you still get to watch them fly. And uh, they're just, they're amazing. They're amazing acrobats. When, you, when you're laying in one of those fields in North Dakota and those things start dropping down from 300 yards and they are on you like faster than I just said that, you know, you're going, wow. I mean, that's, acrobats that's a perfect incredible. way to put it. It's incredible how, you know, and, and, and then it happens again, but completely different. It never yeah. happens the same way twice, right. you know. Um, and, and so that part of it, and yeah, calling is a component of that because, you know, when you blow in that call and that guy's dropping out of the sky like that, it, it's in your mind that he's doing that because he hears your call, whether he is or not, we'll never know. Right. Yeah. But, but we all believe that. Um, so I, 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 I really enjoy watching the birds fly. And, and I think one of the other things that that's really, um, um, you know, that really kind of drives you when you're out there, drives me anyway, is. We, we have access to a lot of great camo and ways to hide from ducks and everything now. And, you know, you need to utilize that because it's getting harder, you know, because guys, the guys that are hunting across from you are getting better. And, uh, and hopefully you are too, you know, so, um, that, that's kind of an entertaining part of it for me, but, uh, yeah, I'll always love the calling, but I really like watching the birds fly. So if, where would you rank the, the, butchering and processing and cooking amongst now we we it's watching birds fly you still enjoy the calling you love but you love the camaraderie is cooking automatically part of that camaraderie part of it sure sure i mean that's that's that makes it last that much longer you and i are going to have a whole bunch of duck dinners here between now and next september that are gonna you know we're gonna think about where we got those birds and what we did to get them but dave we only have Three days possession. Yeah, we're not, so we're gonna have to stop inviting so many <laughs> yeah, people. We're gonna stop inviting people. <laughs> nobody, nobody expect an That's invite right. to yeah, one right. of our duck feeds. Exactly. No, so but, cooking is a big part of it, though, sure because to me, like 
and I don't want to make people think like, oh, you got to do what we do. No. But having a cold beer or an adult beverage and being around a grill and coming up with out-of-the-box recipes for wild game is like the coolest thing you can do as a man, no. besides probably raise your kids the right way. Right. I get how important that is. But sure. when it comes to just everyday life, I don't know if there's something cooler. I don't know if you can be cooler than to go out and hone your skills enough to trick ducks to 10 feet, shoot them cleanly and harvest them ethically, and then come back and be able to skin them and, and pluck them and cut them and debone them and, and process them and, and then come up with flavors and, and the different spices and the different rubs and the different vegetables and the oregano and basil and cracked red pepper and, and I can go on and on. Is there any way to be a cooler person in the world, whether you're female or male? I don't think that you can get cooler than that. I know that there's guys that can jump 10, 10 feet up in the air on a skateboard and a snowboard. I get it. But those guys still love being around that fire. The cool part's being back at camp for those guys. I get that jumping is cool. Right. And the shooting the duck is cool. But man, there's just something so... I, I don't know if I'm getting too passionate about it, but I just don't... When I, me and you were around a fire and we bring a tray of food in and have people go, wow, what is this? And that's duck. And yeah. see the look on my daughter's face. Uncle Dave, I need more duck. Is there a cooler way to live? Is there a cooler human being out there than a freaking duck hunter that knows how to cook? Or any any, any hunter. Any hunter. Any yeah. hunter. I, I, when you mentioned that, the first thing I thought of was um, the first time you and I hunted together in Canada, you came up and stayed in this little motel, the Wagon Wheel, I think yeah. it was. And we would go shoot ducks in the morning or go shoot ducks in the evening, whatever, it didn't matter. And they had a grill at this motel that... Just whoever was cooking could borrow the grill, right? So we just rolled the grill. This was before the Traeger days. So we just rolled this crappy little grill over to you in front of the motel rooms that you're staying in. And, you know, we're playing horseshoes in the parking lot and doing whatever. And I remember three days in a row you cooked ducks, three completely out-of-the-box different ways. I mean, we had, you know, duck tacos, tacos for sure. Fried rice on yeah. a grill, which was almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and very primitive cooking methods for sure. And then we did the speck spaghetti. Yeah, we did that spaghetti. Yep. Spaghetti. And, uh, um, and we did something, whatever, we did something else too. I think we had fajitas or something one day as well. But um, anyway, that's, you know, and you were literally, I remember you telling me, I said, so who gave you this recipe? He goes, yeah, we're just making it up as we're going along. And I go, perfect. Isn't that the coolest part of it though? <laughs> it is, it is. And then, you know, and then what happens is everybody says, well, I want that recipe. Well, you know, okay, this is going to be close. You know? Close. But the next time I do it, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to add this instead of that. Just, yeah. You know, because you, you, you know enough about those spices, you're never going to get too far off of the, you know, too far off a of home base. 100%. Because I mean, you want to eat it and you want to enjoy it. But, yeah, that's, you know, that's really fun. I mean, it's funny when you said that. That was the first thing I thought of. And I remember that. And that, oh. that's, that, that's what, <laughs> you know, I was, I was having talking to my godfather today and he and he was like you know it's just he's 67 now my, he would be the same age as my dad now they were best friends you know lauren lauren sure and he's like yeah i don't really talk to that guy much anymore and i'm like you know what neither do i and then he's like and where i'm where i'm talking about is like my strongest bonds now are what, what the ones that were built through ducks and i'm not saying that it's not going to be deer turkey or trout or whatever i'm just talking personally I still have Wade, who's going to be my best friend for the eternity. He barely hunts. He loves getting in a goose pit once in a while. But our bond was built way before I was even really into water He likes calling. me to row him down the river. Yeah, he loves that. He loves it. 
he's so easy to take care of. He's like the most <laughs> non-high-maintenance yeah. human being ever. But anyway, most of my, I started thinking with, with Lauren, I'm like, my existence now is built around ducks. Like, my daughter is happy every day because I get to provide this lifestyle to her because of ducks. She gets to eat your meals, Dave Stanley's meals, because of ducks. She gets to get a hug from your daughter, Katie, because of ducks. Sure. You know where I'm going with that? I like I, I sat there and I thought, I'm like, man, I really don't talk to that guy anymore. And I'm like, it's because he doesn't hunt with me. It's like, do I need to make more of an effort to go out of my way to contact? And, and, and he's like this. He's like, dude, he doesn't say dude. He said, Chad, I'm 20 year, 23 years older than you or whatever. People are going to, they come in and out of your life all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing to think about. Like you could be friends with somebody for a small, and I'm sure you've went through this where you're friends with this guy for this period of your life and you're fishing every day and you're, you're sure. going to concerts together and you're doing family outings. And then all of a sudden it transitions into something else. You, does that sound right to you? Completely. I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking of guys I haven't seen in 10 years that, that I fished with every day of the week for years, you know, or whatever, when I was in the fly fishing business and, and, uh, and, you know, and then I think of other ones that I see regularly, you know, all the time as well. But you do, it, it you do transition in and out of different phases in your life. And, and, uh, you know, and that, that determines the people you hang out with. I mean, it does, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean you don't dis, that, that you dislike those people that you don't see anymore. Right. You, they just aren't a part of the, the piece of the puzzle you're working on right now, you know? I mean, if you think about it that way, you know, your life's all these pieces to a puzzle and it's going to end up being done one of these days. They're just not part of the piece you're working on right now. So, I, Yeah, I, I really saw evidence of this too. I st- when I was talking to Lauren about it too, is at my dad's funeral when I'm like, didn't know some of them. Sure. You know? And then that just, that was when this solidified what I'm thinking is like, Pops didn't talk to a lot of these people, you know, might not have been the last year of his life. Mine, like you just said, 10 years, who knows? But then he dies, and then you couldn't fit another human being in that part of the city that day. Right. And I'm like, man, you know, he had an influence, and he had a, a he left his mark on a lot of people that I didn't know, you know that you know that he came into his life in one one time or another, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not like a guilt trip to me to go, man, I, I'm not going to feel guilty about not calling that guy, even though at one time we were inseparable. And I think it's just natural progression to where sure. most of my conversations now you know, are, are with people. They're not all about hunting, but they're with people that I share that bond or that lifestyle with. And I don't know, maybe, you know, hopefully it never ends. Like I don't hope, I hope it doesn't transition into something else to where I'm having conversations with uh, people that garden, (laughs) even though I love gardens, but I just think that conversations with passionate hunters and outdoorsmen and providers is, is, is what, when I was talking to my godfather, I'm like, yeah, that's mainly what my life is wrapped around. And maybe it's just because I hunt, but it can't be. Because there's so many more uh, interesting topics that we touch on that have that don't have to do with killing an animal. Sure. And I just it, it was just weird to hear him say, "Man, I'm telling you, in life, all these people, you're gonna you're gonna see it, and you're gonna think back and go, damn, wonder what happened there. Wonder what the heck saw. Or you it, see him in the grocery store, or you you know you're sitting at a stoplight and you look over there and go, I went to high school with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and for for yeah. a part of your yeah. life, he was in it. And he was your my teammate or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's right. It's, I just, I just love the bond that that cooking in that lifestyle allows us to keep, I guess where I was going with it. And when I got long winded there, it was, you say you can't wait till September. I'm so giddy right now for, to be back. I mean, I'm, I literally talked to Grant Kuypers last week 
and Barkley and the guys up there of like, we're doing this and they're like, they're already fired up and planted. And you talk about people that have been there, done that when it sees animals no dying, kidding. they don't care about that part of it anymore. They, of course they want us to have success, but when you're talking with somebody that you live 2,500 miles from and you're doing it seven to eight months out, it's not like I'm putting a deposit down on the hunt, which is fine too. Cause that's part of booking a hunt. We're literally sitting like talking about what meals, what food do we need to have in camp? What grills do we need? To, you know, it's like, what is cooler than that? It's like my whole existence right now is in my happiness and everything is based on knowing that I get to do that again. Right. And I don't know if you can get that with other things in life. That's what this whole thing is. Can you get it with golf? Can you get it with being an NCAA a crazy basketball fan and it's March Madness? I don't know if anything else can bring that solitude to a person's soul that they're like, I got this come. I can't wait for this. Me and Dave are going to cook this on Friday. We're going to talk about what we're going to be doing in October. Sure. We got to figure out where we're, what, what decoys we're getting. It's like, is there anything else that does that in life? I don't know. I, you know, because we're so, some people would say one dimensional, we will never know, Probably <laughs> but that's not. okay. That's okay with me. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to live with that. Um, I like my life. Um, but, but no, I, I think that the, probably golfers and and whoever, I mean, I just picked golf because you said that, but you know, fishermen certainly are that way. Um, well, you're a badass. Look, think about it this way, Dave. I'm not trying to interrupt you. Yeah. You are a world class. You are a world class. There's mallards come in, Hold but on. you are a world class fly fisherman. And you are a great golfer. Like, I don't know if you're scratch. I don't know what your handicap is, but I know you shoot par sometimes. That's hard to do. That means if you have, oh, par means that if you have a certain amount of shots you get on each hole and some of them add up to 70 to 72, right? That means that you at least only take 72 strokes during that round of golf. That was a while ago. That was a while, but that's <laughs> yeah. what par means, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. impossible for me. I'd be like right. 160. But my point is you're good at that. You're world-class fly fisherman. Are you giddy? Does, does those parts of your life bring what duck hunting and hunting and conservation and that whole lifestyle brings to you? No, no. And, and honestly, I got to tell you, when I, when I chose to get into the fishing business, I, you know, when I was in it for, well, I'm still a fishing guide. So whatever, 40 years, um, I did it because an old man I worked with at a fish hatchery in Virginia told me, he goes, look, if you love to hunt, work for the fisheries department. If you love the fish, work for the game department because you won't be busy in the time of year that you want to be out there, which didn't turn out to be completely true, but, but it was a lot better than that. And, and, and I mean, I've always kind of lived my life that way. I, I do truly love the fish and, and fly fishing is addictive and, and fun and you get to do it in some of the most beautiful places in the world, but it doesn't matter whether you're fishing with a fly or a worm or whatever, you know, just do it, get out there. Um, it's addictive and, and, it, and it can be all consuming, but no, no, the, you know, you don't ever want to have to have that conversation about if I had to pick one, but if I had to pick one, it wouldn't be fishing. <laughs> it would be duck hunting for sure. Okay. Then you have two children, uh -huh. one in their mid twenties, one in their early thirties or 30. Yeah. Is the wedding and you have to be at the wedding, right? Yes. You have to be. Right. But both of them know not to have the wedding during duck season. <laughs> That's we already had that discussion. <laughs> when I get an invitation to somebody's wedding and I see that it's from September to January, I'm like, what are you thinking? What were you thinking when you played? I frequently call them and tell them that. And then I send them a nice present. <laughs> yeah, a nice present. Where are you registered at? <laughs> yeah. Where are you registered? Yeah. No, it's, you but know. where are these people 
where and I say people, I'm talking about John, David, and Katie. They're gonna one is I didn't know this till the other day, but one's probably getting married in Montana. Katie's getting married in Montana the last day of August because officially the first day of September is the beginning of hunting season. And I swear to you, that's why she picked that. So day. you're literally <laughs> going to drive through Montana on your way to Canada and watch your daughter get married. See ya. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> that's freaking awesome. Yeah, that's and then your son's getting married in Canada, right? He's getting married off of Vancouver Island in the last weekend in April. So they're both. Oh, you're saying you can fish are, there. Are, oh, yeah. No, we're going to go a week early and go fishing. Actually, he's going to go and his wife and, or his fiance. And, She's pretty so, awesome. Huh? She is. She so, is. what do you and, think and, about and, and Katie's? Um, what is, what what do you think about the, his this this guy that's taking your daughter, Carl? Carl. Carl is a good dude, man. He is, and he's a really interesting cat. He's um, uh, he works for the Department of Agriculture, and he's an airport biologist now. He used to be a government trapper and whatever, and which is a pretty cool job. Yeah. And being an airport biologist is a pretty cool job too, because he. He works at the Reno International Airport and then a military airport just north of here. Um, and, you know, the guy's shooting geese every day. <laughs> to keep him away from the planes? Yeah. Yeah, he's not shooting them with a shotgun or decoys, but he can kill them with a 17 in a ditch pretty good, I can tell you wow. that. Wow. <laughs> or whatever. But, I mean, it's not, and it's not just the geese, you know, and, and he does occasionally have to uh, take some ducks out. and They just can't have birds taking up residence on the airport property. Or you'll have another Soli incident, right? right? Is that and, what caused and, that? And he catches, um, he catches hawks. You know, he has he's got traps with little animals in them and stuff. So the hawks come down and they get all tangled up or whatever. And and he'll he'll take those and band them and, and turn them loose elsewhere. But one of those things, you know, once birds have flown, it's pretty tough to them not to continue to come back. So it's sort of like bears. You know how they tag the bears, right. problem bears, and they give them three strikes and then you're out. And uh, um, but, but he, anyway, Carl is, is, uh, he was a biologist in, in Idaho before he came here. He's just a really sharp guy and he's really nice and he takes such good care of my daughter. So yeah, I'm really lucky. You know, that's, you're going to find this out in way less time than you think. You better not. <laughs> when, when guys are Got a lot of chasing guns. your dog. Yeah. I you know. ever heard Rodney Atkins sing, I'm going <laughs> to still be here cleaning this gun. That's, oh, yeah. <laughs> the only speech I remember from high school is my girlfriend's dad. That's a clever song lyric, man. Yeah. Or Ron White, I have no problem going back to prison. Back to prison. <laughs> <laughs> so bring her home on time. No, but but so I'm lucky in that respect. Allie, my son's fiance, is is a darling girl. She loves to fly fish. She's got two little boys that are just sweet kids and, and a lot of fun to be around. And uh, um, and then like I say, Carl is uh, you know he's he's just a great guy. And and they're both Katie and John David are both. You know, head over heels in love with good people, so I couldn't be luckier. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm getting both of the weddings out of the way in one year. <laughs> well, you only so, have to pay for one of them, right? One would hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, according to the law book of weddings and matrimony, you yeah, know, but you got to remember they're Canadians. They don't, they don't, they don't work out of the same. That's look. a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's a I good found point. <laughs> so what? What is on? What is before we wrap this up? What is on the? docket for waterfowl hunting right now going into 2019 is there anything that's out there that we need to pay attention to is there anything that we need to be getting involved in more so than we did a year ago what voices are out there that we need to be listening to what voices do we need to try to have is there anything that's on top of your mind that hey let's get out and support this initiative right now i know it's always going to be getting new people introduced because right. that's what's going to keep it alive right is there anything else that's that's on your mind i, I don't i don't think so just you know if, if you can you know volunteer to do something with kids and in the outdoors and uh 
And if you can, if, if you don't have an event to do that with, start one. I've started a bunch of them, and they're not hard to do, and you can always find people to help you, <clears throat> excuse me, when kids are involved. Um, other than that, um, I think that, I think we have to always be on top of the fact that, that there are a lot of people out there trying to take our lifestyle away, usually from misinformation, but whatever. There's a lot of, we'll just throw them in one category and call them anti-hunters at this point, but, um, you know, if you're expecting somebody else to, to protect your rights to hunt, then you have to be willing to live with the consequences of letting somebody else look after the thing that's most important to you, if that happens to be most important to you, or fish, or whatever it is you like to do. Hike in the mountains, I don't care, you know. Um, you just, that, that, would be, that would be a big thing. So the politics. Yep, the unfortunately. Legalities. Unfortunately. You know, like Remy Warren, who you know, he talked about it very well about, you know, we don't have a, a constitutional right to hunt. We do not. It could be taken away or voted away if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. It's the right way to do it, tactful way to do it, to showcase it, to, sh you know, we're no, not going to be ashamed that we're hunters. No. We're not going to be ashamed that we kill animals because the education part and being, or not being ignorant and being able to have a civilized conversation with somebody about, well, let me tell you what hunting and the hunting money does and what something maybe just, just like with the duck stamp initiative, where those monies go and why are these populations thriving right now? That's a lot of pride that we take in saying, Hey, you know, just now in Reno, the sheep show happened. Yes. The amount of money raised for conservation in those three days is astronomical. If you see, and I don't, people would be like, Oh, he only kills big sheep because he can afford to. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that have money and they deserve their money. They worked hard for it and they, and they came from the ground up. And we have no right to ever pass judgment on somebody because I don't care if they inherited money or whatever. If you're a good person and you have the ability to spend that kind of money on a tag and it's legal and it, money goes back to helping preserve that population and that habitat, what and, is the and free... And it's fair chase. And it's fair chase. Yep, yep. There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing at all. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm saying personally, my opinion no. is that, do I w wake up in the morning and go, man, I wish I could afford to spend $180,000 on a tag. Not many people can. No. Not many people have that size of a hunting budget to do that. Mine's more right around the $7,400 a year, you know? <laughs> and part of that goes to tires. Right. But, right. but the people that can do them, God bless them, man, for doing it and, and sure. raising that kind of money. No, and... and the U.S. in specifically, you know, here in America, the conservation efforts here are astronomical compared to the rest of the world, all the rest of the world combined. Um, it's it's people taking care of the things they love, you know, in the best way they know how, and and a lot of those guys that buy, you know, let's say one of those people who's doing that is buys a hundred and eighty thousand dollar sheep hunt. Okay, great, you know. $160,000 of that is going to go to, whether it goes to the state wildlife fund or whatever, you know, there's a whole bunch of that money is going to go towards protecting what that guy loves and what you love. So it, it's, uh, it, you have to be careful about divisive things within hunting. And that's one of them. People who spend a lot of money versus people who are on a, a much more modest budget, you know, and, and, and we run into that a lot in waterfowling, you know, there's, a, there's not a whole lot of water in Nevada that's, public you know there are some very good wetlands that are but you can count them on one hand yeah and there's not a whole lot of water in nevada either so that's right but let's take california there's not a whole lot of public ground over there either and and they're, they've they've morphed into the situation now where to hunt on a national wildlife refuge 
or a state uh, wildlife area, you, know, you got to put in for a draw and or sit in a sweat line, you know. That's not good. Not good at all. <laughs> but anyway, back to what I was saying is, is, is there's the people, um, you know, who do this, our, our conservation effort is, is phenomenal in this country. It is. And I listened to your um, podcast with Remy, you know, and I have a huge amount of respect for him. He's a friend of my daughter's and, and I don't know him very well, but um, he, we got him to come and speak at a camp for us a couple years ago. And he was just a rock star, man. Amazing presentation to to kids and and uh and i know he believes it and he lives it you know he's, he's that kind of Big guy time. and and on my 20-hour trip to texas and my 20-hour trip back i listened to several of your podcasts <laughs> and steve ranella's the meat eater and, yeah. and the other ones i like but um uh but yeah that's um the conservation effort's a big deal a really big deal huge you know and 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 it is one of the ways we combat anti-hunters because there's no national wildlife refuge system in this country without hunters and fishermen period no. end of story yep. never happened never would um and it's supported by them you know constantly um and then there's that's just one example but um anyway that's i, I think going back to your you know the, the initial question that started this that probably more than anything is you know getting involved in conservation efforts and and, um, you know, being aware that there are people out there who want to take this away from you. Um, and there really are. Oh, yes, lots there of, are. Lots of With lots of money, too. Way more money than people would imagine the lobbyists and the, the antis have that, that, that they could fight any court. They could, they could sue you over anything. And that's what you got to be cognitive of is like, I don't know. Let me ask you this on a smaller scale of this politic deal. Does it piss you off when you see people disrespect the animal that they just harvested? Yes. So you listen no to question. that part of that podcast and I saw it again today. No question. Not that same picture. I saw another one from an individual that I never would think that I would see it. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. You're in the back of your truck, you're unloading stuff, whatever. But to take the time to take the picture, then more importantly, to take the time to post it and write something, I'm just like, I don't get that. And I think that that's one little simple step that you could talk to people about is be cognitive and be compassionate about that animal from the beginning of the hunt to the, before, until you eat it and way after that. Right. I don't know. Something just pisses me off when I see that, Dave. It just, it drives me nuts. Me too. And I, uh, you know, I heard you talking to Remy about that in that podcast and he, he, he said it really well. And, and social media is a, is a double-edged sword. It gets a lot of the message out there, but the message isn't always good. No. And, and some guys put that stuff on there. You know, we had some friends who did a video one time of shooting ducks, and they were sluicing them on the water, you know, over and over. Oh, I got no problem. Most kids shoot their first duck on the water. A lot of men still shoot their ducks on the water. There's nothing illegal about it. It's just may not be the best way to portray duck hunting Why into a it? massive group of people who know nothing about what you're doing yes. other than you're shooting a defenseless animal on the water. And it's about no being respectful of those people that don't get it right. and not giving them another thing to say, well, what, you know, that is not a good, a good representation of the hunting right. brand or the hunting and, lifestyle. And that's a minor issue. That's, you know, you've seen the pictures of people, you know, strapping the animals on the hoods of their car to drive home or whatever, whatever they do. You know, I mean, there, there's all kinds of ways you can, you can interpret the things people do, but but the hunters in particular and fishermen have to be careful what they put out there, because what may be funny to a group of duck hunters 
can be seriously injurious to hunting in America. Yes. You know? Um, what about trapping? And we man? have to be, we have to be responsible. What about trapping along that same theme of responsible? I get it. I get predator management. I get I trapping. I'm not, I'm not against it one bit, but if I'm showing it on TV, do I show a live coyote that's alive, that's in a leg trap and we've done it. We've done it on our shows in the past. And I'm like, is that, it's realistic. That's really, that's real life. I get that. But does it need to be out there? I don't know. I, I, it's just like, I, I don't want to become so soft because I'm scared or threatened because I'm not. I, I believe in this lifestyle. But like, I see that and I'm like, I think that that could have been done without showing that facial expression of that coyote being there you go. scared or, or disrespect. Like, it's just like, we can do it in a different manner, I think. But that guy who's stuck in a trap, the part you didn't show is where a guy went up and cracked him in the head with a bat or shot him behind the ear with a twenty two. which is, I'm not trying to upset anybody by saying that, but that's what it's was going to happen cool. next, okay? Um, it's Trapping's a tough issue. I, I believe trapping's uh, the right thing to do uh, for lots of reasons in lots of places. Um, I think the trappers have been over backwards in the state of Nevada to accommodate a bunch of people who wouldn't, walk across the street to accommodate them, you know? Yep. Um, and, and in a lot of ways have greatly affected their enjoyment of the sport. Um, but they've stuck with it because they felt having it was more important than, than necessarily being able to do it within a thousand yards of somebody's house or whatever the regulation might be. Um, but no, responsibly showing, you know, trapping on the, on the um, social media or whatever is, uh, or TV like you guys have done, you know, you, you do really need to look at how important is it that you show this scene? You know, how important is it? I mean, are we trying to, you know, are we trying to recruit trappers? I've never seen a show that had that slant. Okay. Where, you know, I mean, I'm sure the trappers association is trying to recruit them and that's great. And they could probably come up with some great ideas about how, um, you know, you could portray this to people. I think trapping's trapping's a tough issue. It's no different than hunting, though. You're, you're killing an animal, yeah. okay? How you kill it, okay. They can make a case for, yeah, they're in leg hole traps or whatever, but we shoot a lot of animals that walk off, and we have to go chase them down. They're suffering just as much, as the, if just not more, smart. than that animal in the trap. None of us want that to happen. When we shoot a duck, every one of us wants to see that thing drop its head straight down and make a big splash in the water or yeah. hit the cornfield or whatever, and it's all done. You don't want to have to go out there and wring his neck, you know, but it happens. It happens. It happens a lot. And the same thing with, you know, there's, I don't know any of my friends who would, you know, take a responsible shot at a deer and, um, make a poor shot and not feel bad about it. You know, now that doesn't do the deer any good, but, but my point is their intention was not to do that. Right. Their intention was to make a clean kill. That should be everyone's intention. Same with the trappers. Trappers have to check their trap lines every three days. If that's, the, if that's the rule in the state, then that's what you got to do. I noticed they're trying to pass a law in um, Montana, I believe. I believe it's Montana, uh, where they have to check their traps every day, which is time prohibitive. Nobody can make a living trapping anymore because we've already made that too difficult. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, how are they going to do that unless three trappers get together and they just take turns, you know? Yeah, but I mean, but then they have to split the, you know, it's still... It, it's you're not, not going to make any money. Your fuel bill is going to be through the roof. Right. And, and, and a lot of these guys I know that trap, there are some guys who make their, a portion of their living doing it. Some guys just do it to meet expenses so they can be out there. 
Yeah. You know, same reason you and I go duck hunting. Right. They want to be out there. They want to be checking this out. They want to. That they know they're taking predators out that you know that need to be controlled or at least need to have a you know overall population um, level controlled and and so they're doing good in that respect. But but I mean they're into the whole game of you know how am I going to put this set out here so that you know this animal is just he's going to walk into it. You know he's not going to be suspicious and and you know you can't use bait and stuff like that in Nevada. So. It takes, these guys are amazing. Well, you've done the TV shows on them. You know how they are. I mean, they're crazy good outdoorsmen. Probably the best outdoorsmen I know. I wouldn't argue that. Um, you know, or cer- certainly the most observant. That would be the better way to describe sure. it. Um, you know, it's tough to tough to knock a guy like Remy Martin, who <laughs> is a hell of an outdoorsman, yeah. whether he's a trapper or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, it's, social media is a double-edged sword, man. Big time. Man. But if you do it right and you take pride in showing that it's not about that, the dead part of it, I'm not saying don't take a picture of your pile or your limit. I'm not saying I'm not, that's awesome to have that. You have a wall full of that stuff. I do. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just think that there, I've seen some stuff out there to where the, the people that are putting it out there think that it's the right way. When I know that it's not, even though people could say, well, that's your opinion. I'm like, no, there's a right way to do things, especially when it comes to the, dealing with a dead animal. Right. Well, take a duck, for example. When you breast a duck, and you've shown that a zillion times on TV, right? That's not an offensive thing, all right? No. There's not a lot of blood. There's no guts, you know. There's, you know, things not kicking or anything. Um, when I used to have a commercial operation in Canada, one of the years we were doing it, you know, we had a Facebook page and all this crap. And Anyway, um, we took a picture of my partner's two boys who that year had decided they were old enough to clean ducks and they were like five and seven, right? But they could do it. I mean, I taught them how to do it and, and they could do it well. And so they're cleaning them and their mom shot a little video of it and thought it'd be cute to put it on there. You cannot believe the negative, which I didn't care about. And I still wouldn't care about it because I don't think we did anything wrong. My point is you cannot anticipate what someone is going to take the wrong way. Right. I mean, people thought we were making those kids do that. And, you know, I mean, the, the stuff that, that they thought of in their mind was so far off base of what actually happened, the reasons for it and what took place that, you know, you just kind of stand back and shake your head and go, how did anybody ever get to that conclusion? Yeah. And that's why you have to be like, you, I'm not going to quit showing a kid harvesting his first duck like we just did with chase which we didn't even get into today you were part of that but those kids cleaning those ducks that's awesome that is an awesome way to raise a kid to kill his own food and to to provide for his family sure wild game and protein and they're not old enough to hunt yet so that's how they can participate what there's nothing wrong with that no they want to be there they go out and lay in the blind you're never going to make the antis happy well, Clay posted a picture of Chase's first coyote, and a lady wrote in and said, perfect, you're raising the next generation of mass shooters. Like, that lady should go to prison that. for saying that. That's that. so out of, that's so lame to say. That lady's crazy in her head. She's psycho. Right. I don't even know her. Right. Don't care. Don't, wouldn't don't give her the time to. of day. Don't want to know her. Yeah. But that's the same lady that's going to see these kids cleaning ducks the right way and still say, you're not going to make everybody happy. I'm simply saying that let's not give them anything. That's like, that's like, I'm not, I don't want to use the word detrimental, but like when I see birds being disrespected or animals being disrespected after they're dead or obviously when they're alive, we don't disrespect them. But I, I just think that that's just one thing that you can control and not show it. You can. And, and my point of that is it's hard enough 
to figure that stuff out, you know. Um, when you go on with the things that are normal processes of the course of going hunting, you know, and that upsets people, then you realize what you're up against. Big you know? time. And, and people, you know, it, there's way too much of it out there, Chad. I mean, you know, you, you and Remy discussed a couple of examples and whatever, but it's, I mean, it, it's, it's bad, I think. I mean, and I don't think people realize what they're doing. That's why I said, when you asked me, what are the things we can do this year, get involved in? One is, you know, we got to look after our, the, the, it's not a right, it's a privilege. Privilege. We have to look after our privilege to hunt constantly, all the time. I don't know if I'm getting soft, man, but I'm telling you straight up, I got so much respect for the ecosystem and Mother Nature and what we are able to do in the mountains and the woods and the hills and the streams and the rivers and all that. It pisses me off to see snakes. Get, and I don't care if you hate snakes. I know people, I hate snakes. I'm scared of them. I get that. That's one thing. But when I see coyotes and, and animals that aren't as pretty or they are considered predators or meaty, like wolves, or you see the disrespect that I hate F a coyote. And I hear that. I'm like, no, that's a wrong attitude to have because that coyote is the most adaptable animal in the world. And we embarked on him. We came into his land. He was here way before us. Now, are they out of control in places? I, I don't know. I, but predator management is important. But I can't stand anything getting disrespected to the point of, and I don't want to sound soft. Like you catch a fish and you throw a bass into, a, into your cooler or whatever. I get that. You're keeping them alive. They're staying fresh. I'm not trying to sound like a pansy. I'm saying no. that the disrespect, if you kill a snake and you take the time to go video, you laughing at that snake or you twirling, and I've seen them swinging them around in the air and then letting them go. And I'm like, Really? You feel better about yourself now? Like that snake is part of our ecosystem. Now, is a rattlesnake a bad animal? They can cause damage, but they also do a lot of good for the environment. Mm -hmm. So I, there's all these arguments, bull snakes. If I see, you know, what bull snakes do to keep the, the rattlesnakes in check, I'm like, why don't disrespect anything. Is that being soft in your opinion? Am I getting softer as I get into my forties or am I, am I a pansy to start with? Or is there a right way to look at this? Well, I think, I think as you get older, you look at a much bigger picture than you looked at when you started doing all this. When you started doing all this, it was about killing that buck or killing that duck or whatever. And, and as we've talked about many times, it, it has grown from there. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I sit out there in the duck marsh some days and, you know, I see the birds circling and I know they're going to come close, maybe not come all the way in, maybe not get a shot or whatever. And I'm thinking, man, do I really need to kill that duck? And then the next thought I have is, what are you getting soft here? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sally. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Put your big pants on. Right. But, but then, you know, and it isn't that I feel sorry for him. It's, it's, and then what I think about is, you know, I'm going to eat that thing. I mean, I'm looking forward to that part of it too. And that's, you know, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, disrespect them is a good word that you use, but um, I believe that as you get older and you've done a bunch of this, it, you know, it, you, you, you see it in a much different light. You know, it's, it's more a part of your soul at that point. And you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to investigate the things in the corner, the far corners of your soul. And, and if part of that is, you know, yeah, I feel a little different about these birds dying now than I used to, you know, then fine. That's okay. You know, don't I think it's a great speaking topic to go into like what you said, Rami. I don't know what the age group was or the age range of the kids he spoke to, but you have a lot of colleges that have like DU chapters now, Texas A&M being one of the biggest, a lot of the SEC schools, mm -hmm. but they're out West now. You got, you got 
UC Davis in California has a great waterfowl biology program. It'd be a cool topic to go in and sit down and talk about that right there of like, hey, if you can learn this earlier in your hunt, and I talk about that, like, I wish I would have known how special duck camp was at 21. I love being there. But then 20 years later, I'm like, man, there's no better place in the world. I don't care if you're talking about Tahiti right. or, or the Cayman Islands or wherever. There's no better, better place in the world, in my opinion, than duck camp. I think that's a cool topic to, to do a speaking series on or a, a seminar topic series to these different organizations that have somebody like that are, what is the word? They're still, you can still influence them at that age. Those are your inf- influential years to where you're starting to learn about life and getting out on your own and how to make money. What job am I going to have? Where am I going to live? Do I know how to pay a power bill? I don't really have a checkbook anymore, I guess, with like the way we did, but what, what can I learn? What can I teach somebody by what I've seen through it? And I think that one of the main things right now is like, don't be swayed by social media because anybody can fake anything on social media. And if you're going to do it on there, be real and be respectful of who might see it and never disrespect the freaking animal, no matter what it is, if you killed it or if you're hunting it or whatever. I just think that that that's an easy one to get to that. You can build on that for, you know, the build, the bigger picture from there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good foundation to have for somebody that's 17, that's in high school, that's got his truck for the first time and buying his own decoys and filling up his tank for the first time with his own money that he made during the summer or whatever. And now you can sit there and go, listen, one day you're going to, I'm not saying you got to be all mature and don't go and have your fun. I'm not saying that at all. Cause we've all done that. But just in that aspect of it, start now, start understanding that it's not about seeing them fall out of the sky from 70 yards on a pass shot. It's not about kicking them or throwing them out of your truck or whatever it is. If you start that now, then it's, it's, I think that you can build on the bigger things from there. I agree. I, you know, and, and that's, that's part of that. You know, the other thing we were talking about is, um, you know, if you have the opportunity to influence kids about their, outdoor activities i don't care what it is camping fishing whatever we we just need them because we need them to be aware that it's out there we need them to be aware that it's a fun place to go and do things whether they hunt or not that's not the point but that those people are going to be the voters in the future they're going to be the people who determine what we can do on public land and and if they get exposed to all of these things in a positive light which is the problem with social media because it's not always positive um you know, then, then they'll, they're much more apt to help us take care of what we feel is important to take care of. And we want them, we want the lifestyle to be in good hands. Yes. Like to have a Katie on the board of directors for MBU or my cousin Christy, or, you know, somebody that's watched her dad raise a lot of money and do a lot of, you know, elbow, spend a lot of elbow grease protecting wild sheep or whatever it is. I, I just think that if you can learn that when you're 17, 18, and again, not taking the maturity factor out of it, or we right. know that you're, you're, you're going to go party and you're going to do your thing, but this is a different deal. This isn't about being at a bonfire, drinking beers on a Friday night. This is a, about something that's a privilege that can be taken away, which I guess a bonfire is a privilege too. And if you disrespect that and go light a bunch of shit on fire, make a you're, log you're, <laughs> they're going to make a law against it. So just the, like they will hunting. Yeah. Just like they will hunting. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't know. I like that topic. I like that. Okay. We're going to, we're going to end it on, but we are going to end it on a, a little bit of a higher note. You're scouting. It's Alberta. It's October 5th. It's going to be bluebird skies the next day. You're as good. I'm not saying you get in a bad mood if it's not going to be blue skies or if the if it's not going to be a slam dunk hunt because you're always happy. 
what songs on the radio when you're looking for your feed for the next day? Oh, good one. You get one pick. It's 2019 right now. You got one pick. I don't care when the song was made, but you only get one pick of this song that's on the radio when you put those binoculars up and go, we're hunting there tomorrow. Hmm. That's a great question. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a John Prine song. I knew it. I knew it was going to be John Prine. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. He had a hell of a weekend this weekend. He I, don't, did. I don't know if he won a Grammy, but he was up for one. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Three. He's up for three. He's the best. He's so the it would be a John Prine song. It would. Played loud, and I'd probably be the only person in that part of Canada that knew the lyrics, but that's I don't okay. Know. You think so? No, nah, no. Nah, he's pretty popular wherever. God, he's so good. Folk and country music. So is. we talked about some cool things. We've we've said it all, as Howard Stern would say. But we, I, I think that we're on to something with that. Maybe that some of those topics for a speaking deal. Maybe get yeah. Remy involved. There's 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 something. I'll talk to you about it later. But I learned this from a PhD professor in Colorado, a business professor that that there's there's a need for that in college campuses. There's a need for a seminar tour. Let's not talk about. It. I don't want to give anybody any ideas. I might even freaking edit that part out of this podcast so y'all don't go <laughs> take you. it but we'll talk about it down the road dave stanley the man the myth the legend if y'all get a chance to say hello to him this summer do it because you ain't going to get much of his time come september he'll be in a different time zone a different country pretty much i guess he's in the same country north america well i don't know i mean it's the same continent Right. It's a different Canada's country. Canada's definitely a different country. It's a different country. Different I, passport. I don't want people to think that I don't like Canadians when I say no. that they're so much different than us. The eggs are different up there, though. They don't know how to cook <laughs> eggs in Canada. we got to do a seminar series through every province of Canada on how to prepare an egg for breakfast. <laughs> I hope that doesn't piss anybody off when they hear that. John David's fiance is going to call me and go, let me tell you something. Dave Stanley, thank you. This life ain't for everybody. We got awesome episodes airing right now of the Foul Life Season 10 still on the Outdoor Channel. New merch in the foullife.com store. This life ain't for everybody. Merch is coming soon. And please check out our new duck call line, Jargon Duck Calls. It's at jargongamecalls.com. We got the small talk, the loud mouth, and the icebreaker. We'll be at the NWTF show coming up this week in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City. And where I'm going with that is that my good friend lives in Nashville. You guys know him. You've seen him on the show. He's written a lot of songs. He's written by himself. He's written with our other good friend, Drake White. He's written with a lot of good musicians. Tom Rasheen, do me a favor and play Leith Loft and what you're going to do when that money's all gone. Dave, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It ain't what you want, it's having what you need. I'd rather be poor living off in a hole, rich as and as usual, I want to send a big thank you out to all the support that we've been getting here at the podcast. Uh, remember, today's episode was brought to you by our friends at the Bone Collector North American Whitetail Championships. Go to the website, nawtc.com or bonecollector.com. Get signed up. Get the details. It's only $300, like I said before at the beginning of this podcast, to get signed up. But... As soon as you sign up, you get a package that's worth over $500 in Tacticam, Gator Cooler Tumblers, Broadheads, a, a ton of different things that are going to accessorize your bow, guys. You can't go wrong. It's the North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Michael Waddell and the Bone Collector crew. 14 regions across America and Canada. There's two ways to get involved, through qualification and the actual championship. And when you get the details, you're going to be like, man, this is a no-brainer. It's going to be fun. It's ethical. It's great for the sport. And it's going to
going to bring deer hunters around the country and Canada together. We're going to unite and make this one for the ages and for many years to come. So again, thank you, North American Whitetail Championships, for supporting This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. I'm Chad Belden. Can't wait to see y'all out in the field. What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Say life owners won't last that long. What you gonna do when the money's all gone?